let's try it again. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all today. Uh, I just want to start with prayer. Would that be okay? If it was going to be a no, we'd have to have a talk afterwards. You know, prayer is important. No, that's good. Um, all right, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for everybody who's here. Uh, Lord, when we just expect something from you, Lord, we can do that. We can, we can expect things of you. I think you, you, you want us to, but I think that's called faith. Um, and so we come in faith this morning, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be among us. Lord, we're gathered in your name. We're gathered uh, to just be shaped and uh, after you to grow more in your likeness, Lord. Um, and we're hungry for you. We're hungry for you, Lord, and we probably have other things on our mind, a busy season, busy time of the year, um, but Lord, uh, we want to, to know you, to welcome you, to, to see you, to meet with you this morning, so, so Lord, would you do that? Would you meet with us today as we just come uh, attentive to you? So we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our uh, third and final week. We've been working our way through the book of Malachi. Um, and that's, you know, we've talked about it a couple times, but it's a little strange to be digging through, or at least maybe it seems strange to be going into an Old Testament book right here in the lead up to Christmas. But I actually think it's a really good way to prepare us for Christmas, to get us ready and in the right mindset for Christmas, um, which is, again, strange because... I think, at least generally, we tend to think of the Old Testament as like totally mm, contradictory to the New Testament or the gospel, or maybe not contradictory, but just like not quite, it's like something a little different about those two things. And certainly there are distinctions and differences between the Old and New Testament, but I think that as we dig in here, we'll see that actually as we prepare for Christmas, as we prepare for the birth of Jesus and celebrating what he's done, actually being in this book and in the Old Testament in general is actually a really great way to get us ready. Because the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, they pave the way, they set the scene for the ministry of Jesus Christ. They point to the fact that God is doing something in our midst now and was doing something then. God was bringing something about. And as we've seen in the book of Malachi, and really if we would read the rest of the Old Testament as well, we see that God has made a promise. And the drumbeat of the Old Testament is that he's going to fulfill these promises. He's going to bring them about. And there's a promise in particular that has always been the hope and expectation of God's people. And that he's going to send someone... Uh, a Messiah, as they would call him, and Messiah just means one who is anointed, an anointed one, someone who is set apart for a particular purpose, to do a work on behalf of the Lord, someone who would, for the people of Israel, come and deliver them out of all the difficulties and their sin and their suffering and their oppression and finally fulfill all these promises that God had made to Israel to bless them to watch over them, to settle them, to establish them, to build them up. See, Israel had been waiting for the Messiah since the very beginning. Since God called Abraham, promised that he would multiply him, make him a great nation, and through him bless the entire world. It was going to be through the Messiah that this kingdom of David would have no end, be established, a throne forever. It was through the Messiah that these people were going to be brought into a place of blessing and promise and stay there and be rooted and be cared for. They were hoping for constantly in the Messiah for this one who would come and fulfill all these promises. And the Messiah would come, fulfill promises, but also the Messiah would, as, as we're going to look at this morning, he would judge the wicked, he would purify Israel, he would make them love the Lord, and Malachi describes what Israel has to look forward to as the Messiah comes. We read about it in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, for look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. There's the Old Testament that we know, right? There it is. Uh, but 
For all who fear his name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you'll go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. And you'll trample the wicked, for they will be uh, ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I'm preparing, says the Lord of our armies. So we have like these things that we think of as the Old Testament, but we also have these huge promises. This, this like son of righteousness rising, bringing healing in its wings, and we'll go out like, like calves playfully jumping from the stall. There's, there's I mean, obviously two parts of this. Uh, on its face, it's a little bit terrifying. It's a little bit terrifying because to think that God intends to come and to be like a burning furnace, something that would consume, that doesn't sound great. But understand that what we see in the book of Malachi is that God's intention is not destruction, but purification, edification, building people up, not tearing them down. He wants to see Israel restored, renewed. He wants to see the world remade. And he says that for those who fear the Lord, who desire to honor him, this is actually great news. Because a furnace, I mean, particularly in the context of ancient Israel, a furnace was not just made to burn things. It is not an incinerator. That's not its purpose. A furnace at this time is meant to take objects, clay objects, and turn them into something useful. To take things that are moldable and turn them into some things that are established and, and, and are, are going to uh, have integrity and purpose. See, a furnace is really bad news if you're flammable, but it's really good news if you're moldable and you want to be made strong. And that's what God is do, intending to do. He comes to his people and he says, I get it, you're not much. And oftentimes, frankly, you just turn from me and you're not moldable. But my hope and my desire and what I want to see among you is that you would be shapeable, that you would be like clay. And when this day comes, this furnace comes, I'm going to make you into something, something with purpose, something that can be used for great, great things. I'm going to bring integrity where you didn't have it before. And this consuming fire is not going to be, it's not going to eat you up, but it's going to be like the sun of righteousness rising. It's going to bring healing and peace and restoration. If you just keep hoping in me, if you just keep putting your faith in me, and if you would just, as we looked at last week, return. See, the story of Israel, and frankly, my story, is full of failure. But that failure is not, according to God's plan, disqualifying. Israel had not been shaped. I so often am not, am not, I'm not moldable. I'm not malleable to God. I'm not being shaped by him. But God tells them, and I think he tells me, he says, there's, there's, a, there's a promise. We see it in Malachi 3.7. Return to me and I'll return to you. God isn't just going to come and destroy things. He's saying, look, there's going to be a day when this Messiah comes, when all these promises are fulfilled. But man, if you're not prepared, it's not going to go well for you. But there's so much hope because right here, right now, you can return to me. And then when that day comes, it'll be like healing and it'll be so much joy in it. It doesn't need to be a source of terror. If you would simply return to me and trust in me, then this will be a great furnace. It will be something you should look forward to. See, God had a plan for Israel, and he was trying to do something among them. He had established a covenant, a set of promises that would be for them blessing. And that covenant was not meant to save them, but it was meant to shape them. So that they might become the sorts of people who could meet this day with joy. He, he gave them a covenant to teach them to worship. And to seek him. And to love them with, with their whole hearts. But we see throughout the Old Testament, and especially in this book, Malachi, that the people had failed to keep their covenant with their hearts. How does that happen? Um, I, I stumbled across this phrase. My wife read it fr from, from a book that she was reading, and she, she read it to me, and I was just like, oh, that's awesome. And it's this, that the people were more interested in, and this is the phrase, seeming faithful than being faithful. There's a difference between seeming like something and being something, isn't there? And I know that difference intimately because I do it constantly. I settle for seeming 
a certain way rather than being a certain way. Anybody else? Amen. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right? Look, I mean, there's such a difference between seeming something and, and actually being something. And what Malachi is telling the people, what God is telling the people through Malachi is, stop trying to seem like this thing. Stop putting on the, the show, the pretense, and get real about it, because God sees right through it. Malachi says, return to the Lord. And we see it various places. He's calling them back to faithfulness. He's exposing the ways that they've failed. And every time he does it, every time he tells them, man, you, you guys have let me down in in this place, the people, because they're so deep into this seeming but not being, they respond with questions, pushing back at God. They say things like this, you ask, how can we return? God says, return, how? How is that even possible? Aren't we doing it all? And then God says, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. And they say, how are we robbing you? And God says, by not making the payments of the tenth of the contribution, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be uh, food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessing on you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that you will not ruin the produce of your lands and your vines and your field, and you will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. I warned you guys, this was talking about money this week, so if you weren't here last week, you were, you were warned. But I, we also paired it with cookies. So I think that gets us to just a wash, right? So people are like, oh, we'll talk about money, but there will be cookies at the end, so it's okay, it's going to be fine. And look, it's just in the text, guys, I can't just ignore it. Um, okay, so the question is, what's happening here? It's this, that as part of their covenant with God, like the, these, they had these, these ways that they were called to worship, called to live. They had civil and religious, um, you know, obligations as part of the covenant. And, it, and God had, uh, they, they were supposed to do certain things. And, and God said, if, if you do these things, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to encourage you. The people were called. They had some certain, um, I'll say financial obligations, but they're really just like, um, they were called to bring a 10% of their harvest, right? This is an agrarian society. They didn't really have uh, money in the same way that we do. They weren't making money the same ways. They were, they were growing things. And, and what they were called to do was bring 10% of their harvest into the temple and, and give it to the Lord. And there was things that would happen with that. Um, but here's the thing about this system. It's not a highly regulated system. Like, there was nobody going out to the fields and counting up all the bushels and saying, all right, let's, let's take the 10% back with us. The people were to grow their stuff, to live their lives, and then God says, just bring me 10%. Just do it. But nobody's following up. This is a self-enforced kind of a rule. And what, what, what's happened is that um, they're just not. Maybe it's that some of them are bringing, well, just enough to, to seem like they are. But who's going to come back and really check? So I'm going to bring enough so that I can put on the show and I can still be a part of the club. And then maybe some people just aren't coming at all. And who's really doing a head count and seeing if everybody's here? Well, nobody's you know, going to come. Like, well, I'll say, yeah, yeah, I did it. I did. I, I did the thing that God asked me to do. Seeming like, but not really doing, because no one's really checking. And, you know, this goes on. This goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. But eventually, God calls them out through the prophets. God's asked them to give them 10% for a reason. See, that's the thing. It's for a reason. And the reason isn't that God just needs uh, grain. <laughs> God doesn't, doesn't really need grain. So the covenant is not just arbitrary, nor is it, I think, just to keep the, the ships running. You know, trains running. I don't know if ships run. I don't think they do. He's doing this, and he's asking them to be a part of just like giving something to, back to the Lord to teach them what will happen when they trust in God. Like if, if we look at the way Paul talks about the law, the covenant of Moses, the, these, these obligations that the people had and, and that God promised to, to you know, bless them if they, if they would fulfill them. What we're told is that they're like a teacher. 
like a schoolmaster, Paul says in Galatians 3. They're meant to teach the people what would happen if they trust, trusted God. And, and to develop that muscle, that strength, so that people could actually go ahead and, and willfully and intentionally learn what it means to trust the Lord with every part of their lives. And what God intends to do is as they do this, he's going to show them, he's going to show up in a particular way and bless them in in, in really special ways. They're called to give, and God says, watch what will happen when you do. I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to watch over you. If you would simply return to me and actually treat me like I really exist and like I really care for you. Instead of just putting on the show and wanting to seem as if you love me and care about me. Like actually step out and be a little bit vulnerable and put some honesty on the line. That's what God is telling them so that they might develop this trust. Now I think at this point it's helpful to ask an important question here and that is, does this still apply to us here and I think in, in, in two, in, there's like two relevant questions. Number one is, should Christians tithe, or, or maybe not even should, but must Christians tithe? And if they do, does God promise to bless us? And what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, if you've been following along in this series, I hope you remember kind of a, a principle that I've been bringing up each time for applying scriptures. I think I have it on the next slide here. And that is that before we apply scripture, we need to interpret it well. And in order to interpret scripture well, we need to ask this question. What did it mean to them then? So if I'm reading an Old Testament passage, I need to ask, what did this mean to an ancient Jew 400 years before Jesus was born? Because that's when this book is written. What did this mean to them then before I go ahead and cut and paste and apply it to my own life? And the reason that we need to do that and especially when we read the Old Testament in particular, is because if we want to apply Scripture well, we have to understand both the similarities and the dissimilarities between us and them, right? Because, because there are cultural differences, which are, which are relevant, though not ultimate, but there are also, I think, as we consider the Old and the New Testament, very serious distinctions between this Old Covenant Mosaic Law and the New Covenant that we are a part of through Jesus Christ. And I would argue that when it comes to giving and our calling as people who are a part of the New Covenant that Jesus made, there are similarities and dissimilarities that are really relevant we need to take account of before we go and we ask this question, what does it mean to me now? (laughs) I think it's funny because I've had not just one person, but two or three people come up to me uh, the last couple weeks and say, well, I've never uh, heard anything taught in the book of Malachi except for this one passage on giving. And I think that's funny. Sad, but <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Let's just say it's interesting. It's interesting because as I read the Bible, I, I, do, I do see how this passage is relevant, at least a relevant data point for Christian giving, but I don't think it's a, it's a directly relevant point. And I'll get to what I mean by that in a second. But what I mean is that that, uh, God is calling Israel to a really specific obligation, obligation that they have to give 10%. And he is reaffirming a promise, right, a very specific promise, cause and effect, sort of a conditional um, agreement that if they give, he's really going to make them prosper. He's going to pour out blessing like they would never have even imagined possible. He's going to rebuke, what is it, rebuke the... um, You you saw the passage a second ago. Rebuke the devourer. That was it. I love that phrase. Got to rebuke the devourer. Um, So he's he's these are these are specific promises that is going to make them prosper. But we have to understand this. This is a part of the Mosaic covenant, a set of promises and agreement that God had with the people Israel in particular, and um. Last time I checked, most of us are not Jewish, okay? I'm not Jewish. I don't think most of you are. Uh, we are not called to be people who are keeping the law. If you, have a, if you wonder about that, go read Galatians and then come back and talk to me about it because Paul will call you some names. He literally will call you foolish to think such a thing. 
we are not people called to keep the law in the same way that Israel was. So then the question is, is tithing a Christian practice? Are you obligated to tithe? Does God expect that from you? And if you do, is God obligated to bless you in a particular way? Like some people on television love to tell us. In my view, and I want you to hear me out because this is sort of a two-parter, the short answer is no. Hold on. <laughs> I don't believe so because I don't believe I'm a part of this Mosaic Covenant. I believe that through Jesus Christ, I have a different covenant, the new covenant, this, these promises of God which are distinct from the promises of Moses. They were undergirding the promises of Moses. God was always planning on bringing Israel into this new covenant. He was going to bring blessing through the world through this, this different covenant, but it's, it's a distinct thing. The covenant of Moses was for a time. I stand, thank you, Jesus, on the eternal new covenant, this new way of worshiping God and being with him. So I don't think I do have the obligation to tithe. And by the way, if you are under conviction of the Lord from you do, that you do, do not let me unsettle that from you. I am a man. You are accountable to God. Seriously, don't trust me so much that if you have a conviction from the Lord that you'll let me unsettle it to you. I will point you to some scriptures to justify what I think, but that's the word of God, but don't take my word for it. Honestly. Paul was okay with that. You read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul was really okay with people having sharp consciences towards the Lord, even if it meant they, he, they disagreed with him. He'd say, whatever you do, like, I'm going to present my case, I'm going to make my argument from Scripture, but you are accountable to God, and your conscience is the most important thing that you have. So I just want to, just like a little thing. If you think God says, I need to give him 10%, that's fine, okay? I'm not trying to unsettle you from that. I'm not trying to mess with your conscience. Okay, sorry, I <laughs> got off track here. Here's the thing. I don't believe that tithing is obligated, but I tithe. I always have. I always will. And that's personal. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm speaking of my personal conviction here. Since I've had an income, I've always tithed. So why? What is up with that? Like, what, if I, I don't have to, right? I'm t I'm t I do it from freedom, is my point. I don't think I have to, but I do want to. Because here's the thing. I don't believe Christians have to tithe, but I absolutely, 100% believe that we are called to be generous. Don't lie to yourself and think that, oh, I have freedom in Christ, and so it doesn't matter. I'll keep it all for myself. I don't have to give to the poor. I don't have to give to the work of missions. I don't have to give to the work of church. Like, I just, whatever. It's all for me because I'm free. What a misuse of freedom that would be. 1 Timothy 6. Let's, let's get some scripture. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says this. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they, will, they may take hold of what is truly life. Christians are called to generosity so that we may take hold of what is truly life. We're called to give. We're called to bless others. We're called to support the work of, of bringing the gospel forward. We're, we're, we're called to just like be generous and to give intentionally. Not because if I give 10%, I'm guaranteed to have it back. But because we are called to exercise our faith in God. We are called to, through the way we spend and give our money and use our money to honor God and to sharpen our hope in him. Like, by giving, we lay hold of what's truly life. Giving, for those who are in Christ, is an opportunity to grow in faith and, as Paul says, take hold of what is truly life. The life, the sort of life that is lived 
in dependence and trust on the generosity and care of God. That's it. I can go through my life seeming like I trust God. From the outside, everybody could think, well, this person seems to be good. They say all the right things. They do all the right things. But if I have so much fear and concern that I keep everything to myself and I don't reflect the generosity of God, I probably, let's just be honest, have something in my heart that is keeping me from dependence upon him and trust in him. And I am living a life that is less than truly the life I'm called to. That's the thing. That's what's at stake. By our generosity, by our trusting the Lord with the outcomes, we sharpen ourselves and we take hold of what is truly life. This is not saving ourselves, but it's living into the care and the blessing and the promises of God that he's, not that he's going to give us all of it back, but that he's always going to care for us. So that I could just wake up every morning and not be in fear, not be in anxiety, but I could start to lay hold of what is truly life, a life of dependence upon the Lord. See, I don't believe that the Mosaic Covenant is in force for us, but I absolutely believe that what God is trying to do in the Mosaic Covenant, that is to teach people to trust in him and to grow in their faith by commanding giving, that God still wants to do that now purpose underlying the covenant, he's still trying to do. He wants to create and to call out and to build up people who can trust in Jesus and grow in confidence that God is faithful and to experience that, his faithfulness on a daily basis and to do it not in abstraction, but in reality. That's the difference, by, by the way, between seeming and being. One is an abstraction, and the other is something that we actually get our hands dirty with because we see it in the real world. That's the kind of faith we're called to. Reality. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God, to God through us. See, we can give. We're called to give, to give freely, to give without compulsion. That's the thing is you have freedom in Christ to do whatever you want, but we're called to, to pursue the things of the kingdom. We do it in freedom, though. But, and what Paul knows, what he assures us of, is that when we do that, we're going to experience and see in the real world how much God actually does provide for you and care for you. And how his eyes are on the sparrow and they're on you. And he knows your needs before you know them. And he knows every like a debt you're going to have and everything that's going to require a rainy day fund. He sees it all. He knows it all. So much better than you. He is so much more capable and competent than you are to provide for you. He provides seeds to the ones who sow. How much do we think that we just are sowing and growing and producing our own harvest? Well, I got the seeds, so they're mine. Where did the seed come from? It comes from the Lord who provided it for you in the first place. And we're called to take this step back from this little narrow view of I sow and I reap to understand that, man, I actually, I, I, I sit and I can see a bigger picture, and that's that everything comes from the Lord. And I'm a part of that everything, and so I can just put myself in his big plan and trust in him, and it's going to be so good. And what I will see that is, as I get like a part of this bigger picture of what's going on, I'm going to be generous because I can see the generosity and care of God all the more, and I'm going to experience it all the more. What Paul is calling to us to do is to approach discipline, and I'm, I'm putting these words in his mouth, but to approach, to approach giving as a spiritual discipline. 
We've talked about spiritual disciplines before. My little definition of spiritual discipline is, that, is this. It's something that we can do to accomplish something that we can't do. That's what a spiritual discipline is. Something that we can do that's absolutely in your power to accomplish something that you cannot do that is not immediately within your power. I cannot simply decide to be more trusting in God. I can't access that part of my brain that's the, the trust button so that I can push it and then suddenly, look, I trust God more. What I can do is I can put myself in situations where I will need to trust in God and then I will find him to be faithful in those situations and the result will be I will trust him more. Do you get that? Indirectly, we can get to a place of doing things, and giving is absolutely and should be thought of as a spiritual discipline because I do not trust God well. I will settle for seeming every single time unless I set out and say, no, I want to become, I want to be, not seem. And so if I want to be and not seem, then I have to take the path that's available to me, which is the path of reality. It's the path of spiritual disciplines. It's I need to become something I'm not, and so I need to start doing what I can do to develop these things that I cannot on my own just decide to do. Giving is a spiritual discipline, guys. If you're saying, oh, I don't trust the Lord, I don't have the faith, I don't, it's the thing, it's like, it's like there's a path forward. There's a path forward for that. It's not just, oh, I don't have it. I don't have it. Well, maybe one day God's going to give it to me. God says, hey, look, here's a path. You want to grow? Like, get yourself a little bit uncomfortable. That's okay. And like this path, right, right, is, again, like to bring up First Timothy, that which is truly life. It's to start to walk down that path, the path that is truly life, the path of experience and seeing and knowing uh, my Redeemer lives. Like I'm going to see him in the land of the living. This isn't just abstraction. It's not in my head. How much joy will I have when I start to see God showing up in my life? So much more than when I just control everything and I manage it well myself. I don't want to live like that anymore. See, what I do with money, it really matters. But Jesus knew this, right? Luke 12, 31, Jesus says, seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. That's this, like the stuff of life, the things that you need. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think we know this, this verse pretty well, right? Especially that last part. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But I want to think about it for a second, and I, I have a little analogy. Sean, you're welcome. Um, Sean loves analogies. I just do these for him. So, I drive, ugh, I got a pair, oh, that's gross, I'm sorry. It's, it's my locks, my flowing locks. <laughs> uh, sorry. We all drive, we drive on this, this lovely highway, I-90 Community Church, you probably drove on I-90 to get here, right? Um, and, you know, some of us drive faster than others. I'm from the East Coast, so I drive faster than all of you. You're welcome. We're terrible, we're just awful, I'm sorry. I should, it, I should repent, Lord. Lord, make me want to repent. <laughs> I just get there so much faster. Uh, sorry. I'm sorry. I really do apologize. Anyways, if I'm driving on the highway, I have a good clip the way you do, and I just suddenly, like, let go of the steering wheel, right? I let go of the steering wheel. I will learn very quickly that the car follows the steering wheel. I, we actually, it seems like every, someone learns that every two months <laughs> out here on that dip in the Preston area, right? Somebody, somebody figures that out. Uh, if you let go of the steering wheel, where the steering wheel points, soon after, the car will go there. That's the way it works. And nobody says, well, oh, the wheel is pointing there. Who could possibly do anything about it? That's, that's not how you drive. In fact, the whole thing about driving is that you do control where the car is going we all understand 
that we need to keep the steering wheel pointing the right direction in the direction that we keep the steering wheel pointed in, that's where the car goes. And I think what Jesus' point here, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is that you can do something about your heart. Right? Jesus is, is, is pointing to giving and gift giving and trusting in God, seeking his kingdom, letting him provide for us. As, as, as a, he's, he's talking about this in the context of like, what am I going to do with my money? You can do something with it. You have total control over what you spend things on. You might say, I don't know how to deal with my heart. That's like saying, I don't know how to get from one point to another and get my car pointed in, this, in the right direction. The truth is that you do have a great ability to deal with your heart. And I don't want to like condemn people. And I'm not, I am not trying to suggest that it's as simple as driving a car. But I am trying to suggest to you that you have some handholds that you might be neglecting. And I'm good at doing that. I'm, I'm really great at neglecting my responsibilities and my own ideals and my own callings. I, I, I'm very practiced. But as like Christian maturity, I think is, is, is understanding that we have a calling. It's like what Jesus says, to seek his kingdom first. And we do that in this context of who God is. Like, like what Jesus says, your father delights to give you the kingdom. And I don't know what keeps me from that. You know, like, I think Israel was in this place where they just were totally blind. They couldn't see that they had any control, any part to play in this relationship. Um, and I think I can get there really easily now in my relationship with Jesus, where I can just become resigned and I can feel uh, so discouraged. And I'm not I'm not, like, bagging on the discouraged. Like, I, I 100% get it. Like, we deal with discouragement. It's serious. It's, it's difficult. But there are things that we can do um, if we're discouraged or if we're lost or if we're anxious or if we're unable to trust in the Lord. Like, like one week, we can start to take steps to get past the seeming and into the being. And we can also just, like, like fast and pray and seek the Lord. Like, we can, um, can call our friends and ask them to pray for us. Like, sometimes we just need strength or purpose or vision that we don't have. Maybe, like, maybe, maybe the thing that you need to do, if you're, like, if you're, like, dealing with the Lord, like, on, on the financial side of things, or you want to trust him more, maybe the first step isn't just to grab the steering wheel and just, like, bah! maybe the first step is just getting before him and just saying, Lord, I, I, I don't trust because I don't have this confidence that you're the things you say you are. You're, like, a generous father who delights to give me the kingdom. Maybe deal with that first. I just I don't want to I don't want to stay on the surface level, like because there's so many things, so many heart issues that are going on, especially when it comes to our finances. Some, some people, some of you guys were like raised a certain way. It's hard to get past those things. Are you either raised in fear, or maybe like maybe like you have a parent who just like ruined your life, was irresponsible, and so you, and so you you just deal. You deal with things like there's so much fear and anxiety, like of letting your own kids down or, or letting your spouse down. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. But there's, there's moving past that. That's the point, is that there's a way to move past that. You're not out of control. You can take steps. And, and God's gracious in those. This is the thing. It's not like, oh, well, you better get it together because the furnace is coming. It's going to burn you right up. It's, hey, there's going to be some, at some point, there's going to be some accountability. There's going to be like, it's going to really matter. Like the whole seeming thing isn't going to make it. It's about who you really are. So take some time right now and just, just like become who you're called to be. 
it's like we get so complacent, we get so settled. I get so complacent, I get so settled. But the promise is so good. Again, Malachi 4.2. For those who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. I love the poetic imagery here. And I feel like we've all at least seen the movie of cows jumping, calves jumping in the stall. You know, they're just like careless. They're learning to walk, stumbling a little bit, but they don't care. They're not self-conscious this whole time of doing it right. It's cute. And as the Lord starts to, to come and bring conviction and invites us into this kingdom and invites us into this new kind of life where there'll be healing and blessing, like you can have that same sort of attitude about your finances and about the things that you're anxious about. You can just surrender them to God and you'll become like this, like this uh, young calf playfully jumping from the stall. That's the invitation. When we get past seeming, like we leave the pretense and the artifice and my performing, my constantly performing for other people behind, and then we're just sitting with God and we're just being in his presence and we know that he loves us and he's healing us and he's caring for us and there's so much freedom in that. See, that's the thing, laying hold of life, which is truly life. Like, this is what's at stake. It's, are you going to live a life in the promises, in the freedom, experiencing it? Because it's so good. And how can we just take the promises and just like stand on the outside of them when we're called to step into them? And we have the ability to do that. And I know it's not easy and it might take time. It might take decades. But the promise remains and we're still called to come back in. I, um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's probably an addiction. I don't know. Uh, but I, I had this, heard this pastor um, named Evan Wickham who's Phil Wickham's brother. Phil Wickham's brother, Evan Wickham, and he was, he was talking about the gospel and talking about just things that he dealt with. And he, he said this phrase, and it just, it just struck me, and it clearly like was something that he held on to. Like, it wasn't the gospel, right? But it's, it's what he believes like is, is living into the gospel, and it's this. It means this, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. My life is Christ. Nothing else matters. And I just like, I just stopped because I think this is it. This is the joy and the peace and the new kind of life with G- which Jesus calls us to, this new reborn sort of person who's spiritually alive and living for God. It's, it's when we've learned to do these things and to step into this, this is like the new covenant promise stuff. This is the calf jumping freedom, the this healing sun rising upon us. When we can finally say this and mean it, Lord, I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to prove. My life is you, and nothing else matters. And man, I've thought these things and said these things and believed these things for, I don't know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I don't know, a long time. I'm not going to do the math right now. And frankly, a lot of, this is it, like, I don't feel bad about anything I'm about to say. I don't feel guilty for not having been further along the path than I, than I am right now. Like, this is the life I'm living. But a lot of my life has been spent in the seeming like I have nothing to lose, or trying to seem like I have nothing to lose, and everybody else is saying, no, you're really fearful and anxious, and don't you see that? I mean, no, I'm fine, I'm great, everything's great, I trust Jesus, right? And no, I'm not, I, I, I'm fearful. So much of my life has been spent in thinking, acting like I have nothing to lose, but I actually do. I feel like I have so much to lose because I don't really trust, trust that the Lord's going to actually take care of me. And, and, and then I, so much of my life is, is seeming like or trying to say or, or, or trying to believe that I have nothing to prove, and yet so much of it has been just trying to prove everything. Prove it to, to my parents. Prove it, sorry. <laughs> They're here. No, I, no, no, it's not. It's not your fault. It's just life. Uh, you know, prove it to my, to, my, to my teachers or my coworkers that, I'm, that I'm, I'm valuable, right? That I have something to add and that that should make me feel better, make me feel a part of a club, right? Try to be part of some inner circle. 
some inner circle where you are just like, like people are recognizing, oh, you, you really, you've earned your way. Even as a pastor, you know, <sighs> oh, I'm going to say something. <sighs> I pastor a little church. I could start to try to grow this church to prove something to my co-pastors. And man, I would just be letting go of what is truly life, wouldn't I? <laughs> because I could try to seem like something that I'm not. But when I let go of all of this, all of this pretense, all of this outwardness, all of this like trying to take the things that are just gifts and, and, and turn them into justifications for my existence, I give up on what's truly life. My life is Christ. To be a Christian is, is to understand that, no, I, I, my performance is not my security, and my value is not my contribution. I am loved and cared for by God, and my life is Him. Don't we understand that that's freedom? And how much do I settle for seeming Instead of actually living like this way, I do it all the time. I cannot recount to you the depths of my own self-delusion and the ways in which I fail in these first two things. But the life of faith is continuing on, and it's going to take decades. But every year, I think I can say this is more true in my life. And that's good. I don't feel, I don't regret last year or the year before or that on day one I wasn't where I am now. Come on. The sun rises slowly. Sometimes in Washington it's up there at midday and you don't even know where it's at. You got to have the clouds come and open up and you can suddenly see, oh, I've been making progress. The Lord's been making progress. I have been growing in faith. I might not see it and I don't regret the past. But one day the sun will rise, and one day we'll be able to say this, I think, with integrity. If we just keep going, I've got nothing to lose, because all the promises are secured by Jesus, and I've got nothing to prove, because it was never about how great I was. I was never earning my way into the kingdom in the first place. And when I can say those things, and when I can say them with greater depth, and greater hope, and greater conviction, then my life is Christ, and I can just live in that place. And there's freedom there. And I can say, not in like a prideful way, nothing else matters. That is to say, I get, I get, yeah, I got, you need money, you need to eat, you need a job. You get all that stuff. But it doesn't really matter in the end. Because it's all in this greater context of a God who cares for me. Worship team's going to come up. But I just want to, um, what do I want to do here? Would you guys stand up for a second? I want to just give you guys a chance to respond. And that is, like, if you want, you're, you're, you're free. Don't, don't do it because I'm, uh, I'm saying, inviting you to do it, but you're free. Is if, as I pray, like, if, if that's what you want... <laughs> If you want to take steps towards this, whatever this looks like, having nothing to lose, nothing to prove, if you could just like open up your hands, like opening up your hands is like a super biblical thing, um, but it's like just a posture of receiving where we're just saying, okay, Lord, like I'm coming to you. Like I, I, I have toll booth hands, which means I can't, I can't flatten this because when you go to a toll booth, you have to go like this and the toll booth taker says, what is going on with you? So, I'm sorry. Um, so, this is me <laughs> with open hands. This, that's, isn't that an illustration of sin, right? Sometimes my, wow, that's the thing. I can't make this hand do this. I can't flatten it. I can't, the muscles aren't there anymore. I don't know what happened. I think I broke it when I was supposed to. But the, I think the Lord can see this hand, weak as it is, incapable as it is, and say, that's faith. Let's call it, let's call it flat. <laughs> and let me just pour out blessing and receiving. So, so if you want, like, to just, like, if you want this, 
Like, would you just come to the Lord, open hands, and just, and just as I pray, just like, just like be with the Lord and ask him. So, so Lord, I, I come with an op- open hands. Lord, I don't, I don't come uh, wanting to seem like anything. Lord, I come as I am. And I, I don't have the willpower. Lord, I don't have the integrity. I don't have the conviction or the courage to be who you call me to be so often. But Lord, I know that you bless and you care for me. And I know that if I return to you, you'll return to me. I know, Lord, that you have good promises. And I desire to walk into them with whatever time I have left. So Lord, would you pour out your grace? Would you remind me of your care for me? Would you remind me that I have nothing to lose because I am secure in you, Jesus? Would you remind me that I have nothing to prove because I did not come into your kingdom on the basis of my good works or all the great things that I've done, but I came because you invited me and you provided everything I needed. So I have nothing to prove. And Lord, would you remind me today and tomorrow and the next day and eternally more and more that my life is Christ. Lord, it's from you, to you, and in you that all things that are might be thought of as mine, are, do they just consist, Lord? I just turn to you, Jesus. Would you build me up so that I could say and truly believe and experience that nothing else matters? Let's just stay in this moment of worship and let's just let's just come to the Lord. And, and if you just have things, like sometimes you get to the point where um, confession is needed. And if you have something you want to, to confess to the Lord, just, just take that time. Like, it, it, like think about confession. It's not that I am done. It's, Lord, I want to be done. I know this is not something that's good for me any longer. I know this is something that's getting in the way of my, my growth, of, of my, my um, maturity. And so I just want to bring these things before you. You can do that, both, like, just in front of the Lord or maybe, maybe to your spouse. Maybe there's something you have to confess to your spouse or to a friend or someone next to you who can help you uh, to hear that and then just assure you of, of your forgiveness. The thing is, like, we need to leave stuff behind. We need to leave the seeming behind. And so if there's something you need to, to confess, do that in this time and just come back and worship the Lord. Uh, okay.